Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a challenge to the carbon tax. Will he reverse all of this chaos and just axe the tax? Pierre Polyev says Canadians should cast a ballot before any new increases on home heating are applied as the premiers of Saskatchewan and Alberta cry foul over a home heating oil pause that benefits Atlantic Canadians. Coming up, we'll get some reaction from Liberal Cabinet Minister Randy Boissonneau. And... An Israeli attack on a northern Gaza refugee camp will speak to an NGO working in the region about the humanitarian crisis that continues to unfold. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. While the pressure on the Prime Minister is building, last week he announced a three-year suspension on the carbon tax for home heating oil, a policy that benefits Atlantic Canadians more than any other. And now opposition Conservatives, along with the Premiers of Saskatchewan and Alberta, want it extended to everyone in the country, regardless of heating source. But the Prime Minister is saying no, leading to this challenge from the Conservative leader today. Let's pause the carbon tax on all home heating until Canadians go to the polls so that we can have a carbon tax election where Canadians will decide between his plan to quadruple the tax to 61 cents a litre on heat, gas and groceries and my common sense plan to axe the tax and bring home lower prices. A carbon tax election. Well, joining us now is the Minister for Employment, Workforce Development and Official Languages, also Alberta MP Randy Boissonneau. Minister, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. So I want to begin with Pierre Polyev because he is making this challenge to your government to essentially hold a carbon tax election, saying what you need to do is suspend the carbon tax on all home heating, let Canadians decide whether or not they want this tax, and then move forward. What do you say to that? Well, look, I think it's pretty hypocritical of the leader of the official opposition to start uh, changing his own game plan midstream when he ran on a price on pollution in the last election. And if we go to that particular issue in your question, Michael, we've now fought three elections on uh, price on pollution. And even the Supreme Court has said that not only do we have the right to do it, it's uh, it's now part of the law of the land. And the pricing mechanism works. We're, look, among G7 countries leading in emissions reduction. So we're going to fight another election. Um, uh, in 2025 and if this is one of the issues that uh, Pierre Polyev wants to campaign on bring it on bring it on 2025 but not before that because I think at this point part of the issue here is the fact that so many Canadians are facing affordability issues and a lot of them uh, perhaps are much more focused on the carbon tax now than they were before well, I think we've been very clear with Canadians that we know that uh, times are challenging. We've, uh, we, we are not exempt from global inflation, even though we're down closer to three than we have been uh, in, uh, in over a year. And I'm looking forward to interest rates coming down over time as well. But you know, Michael, that in our pricing pollution system, eight out of 10 Canadians actually get more money back than they put in the system. That was the way that we designed the system at the beginning, because we knew that to set a pricing uh, mechanism into uh, 
um, uh, carbon reduction program was going to have to make sure that it didn't put Canadians out of pocket. So the wealthiest Canadians pay a little bit more, but eight out of 10 Canadians actually get more money back. And what did we do? Like if we actually break down what we did here, we accelerated the replacement of home heating oil with uh, thermal pumps, what do we call heat pumps, in an air, in areas of the country where we have energy poverty. So that means not the ability to switch to another source. We also have people who use home heating oil that tend to be amongst uh, the lower income Canadians. And so if you're uh, in one of these areas of the country and you're looking at a $20,000 bill to get off of home heating oil to heat pumps, it's simply out of reach. It's not possible. So with our uh, rebates, we are now going to make sure that those heat pumps are essentially free, no cost to these Canadians. And why does it matter? So heating oil is four times more expensive than natural gas today. And it's also uh, two times more emitting in terms of its carbon footprint. And so what we've done with this particular program is we've said a couple of things. We've said, look, we're going to make sure that we're there to help you get your heat pump. And once you get off that heat pump, your greenhouse gas emissions will be lower and your bill will be lower. So you're going to have more money in your pockets. And if we talk about the Alberta and Saskatchewan context, if those premiers want to provide the same opportunities that we're seeing with provincial premiers in Atlanta, Canada, they're welcome to join with us and provide a subsidy so that we can actually make sure that all Canadians who are in heating oil can switch to heat pumps and get off a, an expensive fuel that's also harmful to the environment. Okay, but you know the decision to suspend the carbon tax on home heating oil, that benefits mainly Atlanta Canadians. But affordability challenges are what Canadians are facing coast to coast to coast. So why not help everyone, not through rebates, but by relieving them of these carbon taxes? So if we take a look at Alberta right now, natural gas was scoped into the plan that Alberta's on with the federal backstop, Michael. So like I heat with with um, natural gas. Most of the people in, in Edmonton uh, do the same unless they have a heat pump. All of those people are scoped into the program we have. They're already getting more back from our price on pollution program, the climate action incentive rebate, than they're paying to the natural gas company. So Although, nothing's hear, changed but in But to Alberta hear it from the Conservative leader though, that's the very fact that you are having to <laughs> intervene with home heating oil is an admission that, it, that the, the, the rebates do not cover the cost that people pay in carbon taxes. Well, it's not, it's not because of uh, the carbon pricing that heating oil is, is inaffordable or out of reach for people. It's just a more expensive fuel uh, because of the price that the companies have put on it, but it also is a more polluting fuel. And so we want to solve for both of those uh, items, Michael. And I guess what I would say is the reason that we want to make sure that home heating oil uh, gets solved for is because it's so much more expensive, because it's so much more uh, polluting, and again, if the premiers want to make sure that their people can have access to the heat pumps, they can go into that space and join us. And we're already in discussions with BC and uh, it's uh, Prince Edward Island, uh, Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and Labrador that have already indicated that they will sign up. There is, of course, this charge that what, what's happening here is essentially a complex argument to justify a policy that's really meant to show up bad numbers for the Liberals in Atlantic Canada. What do you say to that? Well, the other thing we didn't talk about is the fact that the rural uh, top-up is going to be doubled. And if you take a look at who lives in rural Canada, right now there's way more Conservatives than there are Liberals. So if this was a Liberal-first policy, we would not have a rural top-up and we wouldn't have doubled it. And in the case of people, uh, some households will have, you know, hundreds of dollars and even up to $1,000 more a year because of the top-up. So, look, everybody's going to try to make a big decision like we make for the country like this.
a political one when in fact we're governing for the whole country and if we want to talk about the Alberta context like we built a pipeline Michael and there was controversy across the country when we got off of coal when the federal government worked with Alberta to transition from coal as it's doing right now with Saskatchewan did that do anything for Ontario residents or Quebec residents no because those provinces were already on hydro and so there are different regional um, approaches to getting us to the point where we need to be a net zero and I'll be really clear because Minister O'Regan when he was natural resource minister Minister Wilkinson now that he's natural resource minister and in my portfolio it's really clear that we don't get to net zero as a country without the workers in Alberta and Saskatchewan with the industry of those provinces and the governments and that's why there's a working table in Alberta to work through these things and so is is there regional balance across the country? Absolutely. Do we govern for the whole country? Yes, we do. So how will your government respond then to Premier Scott Moe? Because as you know, he's threatening not to collect the carbon tax if a carve-out is not made for natural gas. Mm -hmm. Essentially, he, he says what he wants to do is give the people in Saskatchewan, in his province, the same tax relief that you're offering to Atlantic Canadians. Well, the, the people who use home heating oil in Saskatchewan will get the same benefit that folks in Atlantic Canada get, as same will folks in Alberta. And look, the Premier, you can ask the Premier himself uh, what he will do. The law is very clear, and it is a country of the rule of law, and Premiers are uh, expected to uh, follow and respect the laws of the land. Minister Boston, I appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Thanks, Michael. All the best. Well, the world continues to react today to an Israeli strike on a refugee camp in northern Gaza, with the EU's top diplomat saying he is appalled by the high number of casualties and the UN's Commissioner General for Palestinian Refugees saying he has never seen a humanitarian crisis like the one unfolding in Gaza right now. The price of justice cannot be the continued suffering of all Palestinian civilians. We are deeply concerned by uh, the catastrophic impact on the population in Gaza, particularly on children, which is why we are calling for humanitarian aid and water and fuel to flow into Gaza. We're calling on humanitarian pauses to allow that to happen. We're calling on the liberation of hostages, on aid to flow in, and on uh, Canadians and their families to get out of Gaza through the Rafah crossing. Well, joining us now from Ramallah in the West Bank is Bushra Khalidi, the Palestinian policy lead with Oxfam. Uh, Ms. Khalidi, thank you for being with us this evening. Thank you for having me. I was hoping to begin our conversation with the Israeli strike on the Jabalia refugee camp. There are reports right now, this is from the Hamas-run government, not confirmed independently, but reports of a second strike in as many days. Uh, what concerns does that raise for you? I mean, I'd like to just say that um, saying the Hamas-run government um, uh, just undermines uh, the sheer number of Palestinians killed in the last four weeks. Um, never have uh, actually any institution undermined uh, the Ministry of Health's numbers in the previous escalations uh, on Gaza, uh, including the US State Department. So I just would like to say that they're pretty, I mean, very. I'm very sure that they're very close to what they're saying. And it's very likely that actually it's more than what is stated because there are so many bodies 
that are stuck under the rubble and also have been sorry for my uh, descriptive language but really blown up to pieces i have been told by my colleagues and my family that are in gaza that they see member dismembered parts of bodies around um 50 almost of gaza has been destroyed um so uh i wouldn't really undermine those numbers there's almost 3500 children reported killed maybe another 1500 stuck under the under the rubble this is more than any number of children killed in global conflicts in the last three years in four weeks so um i i appreciate uh, you starting the conversation about that, but I think it's very important to contextualize. Um, and we have never had a problem with the verification of numbers. Um, and this is also, by the way, uh, because we cannot access the Gaza Strip as humanitarian workers and do those verifications. The United Nations has not been allowed to enter the Gaza Strip by the state of Israel. Um, uh, so, you know, had okay. we also been able to go in, it, we would have been able to verify those numbers. Except that, and, and I, I understand what you're saying, and I understand this is a sensitive issue, but uh, my point in saying that was that we have not been able to confirm this report of a second attack. I actually did not mention any numbers whatsoever. I'm, ax I'm asking you, if there was a second strike in as many days, what concerns does that raise for you? I mean, Jabalia is one of the most densely populated refugee camp in one of the most densely populated areas in the world. So it is overcrowded in Jabalia. A lot of people weren't able to leave. My family actually left to the south and then had to come back home because where they were had been around there, had there had been airstrikes. So they're now back in Gaza City and a lot of people have had to do that. Um, a lot of people also are elderly, um, are, uh, uh, you know, unable to, to leave their homes, ha don't have relatives, places in the south are overcrowded anyway. So the situation is, is that we still have half a million people in the north and there are, you know, the ground invasion has started um, and, and airstrikes are near constant. Uh, so the damage to civilian infrastructure and civilian lives um, is is uh, of epic proportions, really. Um, uh, so I, I've told you the numbers of, of children killed up to now, uh, what it means uh, in comparison to the globe and to other conflicts around the world, uh, what has happened and the, the intensity of the bombardments from what I've hear, heard from our colleagues that are there and my family as well, um, it has been really horrifying. And I think one of the most powerful um, testimonies are from parents um, and their children. I think the impact that this has on children in terms of the noise and the dust, um, uh, the constant noise, you know, and the insomnia and the inability to sleep, uh, uh, the impact that that has on children is now beginning to really show past the shock of the first couple of weeks. So. Um, it is uh, so, really tragic mm -hmm. what's so, happened. So I, and, and I appreciate that uh, your organization has been calling for a ceasefire like many other humanitarian groups. What would you like to see from the international community right now? We need, we need humanitarian aid in a ceasefire. 
We need an immediate ceasefire. We needed an, a ceasefire yesterday. Um, we can't deliver aid without a ceasefire. How are we supposed to reach the north from Rafah uh, with trucks uh, without uh, a ceasefire while you know where there might be bombardments? Um, how are we going to get uh, uh, medical teams without a ceasefire to reach the hospitals in the Gaza City and and the north and 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 get you know doctors and and nurses and healthcare workers in? Um, uh, so the logistical challenge of delivering aid without a ceasefire is nearly impossible. Um, we're talking about 2.2 million people, half of which are children. Uh, we need a ceasefire now, uh, and we have seen it through the public support in every single major city of the world um, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we have all seen it on our screens, um, and also we have seen 700, all, almost 700 organizations globally uh, in an open letter uh, calling the, the, the UNSG and member states uh, to call for a ceasefire. Um, and now we have, we're seeing petitions all around with one uh, gaining over 700,000 uh, signatures from individuals, including influential individuals. I mean, it, you know, the world is speaking very loud and they are speaking to their elected officials and their elected officials are representatives of their constituents. Um, so I expect that they hear that call and that they, they act immediately so that we can bring that aid in and that fuel in and that water in that is so needed because people don't have water they don't have clean water they're drinking salty water and they're all sick and they all have you know they're having digestion issues the kids are sick i mean this is in my family at least uh, uh they're sharing you know loaves of breads and cans of tuna i mean it's it's beyond belief and we can't get in touch. We don't have really an, an ability to assess the situation, to understand in more in detail because our conversations are so short and you know we, we'd never know when we can speak. We're really just asking if you're still alive. Mm -hmm. um, so you know that has been the situation. Bushra Khalidi, thank you for the time this evening. Thank you for having me. Time now for a look at the other stories making headlines today. This year's National Silver Cross Mother is Gloria Hooper, mother of the first Canadian peacekeeper killed in Bosnia. Her son, sapper Chris Holopina, served in the Canadian Army as a combat engineer. Chris was killed in Bosnia on July the 4th, 1996, when his vehicle rolled down a ravine while heading to rescue a British unit stranded in a minefield. He was the first Canadian to die in that peacekeeping mission. He was only 23 years old. The National Silver Cross mother represents all Canadian mothers who have lost their children in the line of service. The Silver Cross is a symbol of personal loss and sacrifice. Pierre Poliev is turning up the heat on Justin Trudeau over the government's three-year pause on home oil heating. I am announcing today that the common sense conservatives have put forward a motion in the House of Commons extending the pause on home heating to all Canadians everywhere. The exemption on home heating oil benefits mainly Atlantic Canadians. The government says it is a targeted program, but Conservatives say the exemption should apply to all, no matter the kind of heat they use in winter. A vote will take place Monday, but the results are non-binding.
Ahead of Friday's meeting of the country's finance ministers, the Deputy Prime Minister has written an open letter to Premier Danielle Smith. The meeting is focused on Alberta's potential departure from the CPP, to which Christian Freeland writes, The suggestion that Albertans would pay less in pension contributions under a provincial plan is ultimately based upon a flawed analysis. The CPP is the foundation of a secure and dignified retirement for tens of millions of Canadians, including Albertans. If Alberta were to withdraw from the CPP, the retirements of millions of Albertans would be at risk. While Alberta has a right to withdraw should it so choose, Albertans deserve to know that doing so would be historic, costly and irreversible mistake. CPAC will have full coverage of the Finance Minister's meeting on Friday. And former BC Premier John Horgan has a new job. Today, the Prime Minister announced Horgan's appointment as Canada's next ambassador to Germany. Horgan was Premier of British Columbia from 2017 to 2022. Okay, let's bring polls analyst Eric Grenier into the conversation now, the man behind the writ. Uh, Eric, always good to see you. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. So obviously, uh, the Liberals' carbon regime is a hallmark of the Trudeau government. But, but given the times that we're in, how important is the environment to Canadians right now? It is still a top issue when Canadians are polled about what they care about. Climate change does rank up there. But what ranks above it are issues like affordability and inflation. And I think that one of the successes that the Conservatives have had over the last few years is casting the Liberals' climate change policy as more of a cost policy that's, that is costing Canadians. And I think that's why we've seen that support for the carbon tax has been going down the longer it's been in place. Okay, uh, so that's interesting languaging, uh, the policy and priorities. But you know, to hear it for the Liberals, because uh, they are trying to make this about policy, they, they say this tax exemption on home heating oil is about greening uh, a, a dirty carbon source with, with a, a better alternative for the environment. But up against that is, is the argument that really what the Trudeau Liberals are doing here are trying to shore up flagging numbers in Atlantic Canada. Just how are Liberals doing right now in Atlantic Canada? Not very well. And so it is hard to escape that conclusion when you look at the kind of numbers that we've seen in Atlantic Canada. The latest poll that we saw from Leger just today, it is a small sample size, but it had a 14-point lead for the Conservatives. And that is consistent with numbers that we've seen in most other polls, so that the Conservatives have now moved ahead in Atlantic Canada. Now, this is a region that the Liberals swept just in 2015. They still won the most amount of seats there in the last two elections. It's one of the pillars of the Liberals' re-election strategy, and it's completely crumbling. If the, an election were held today, a lot of Atlantic uh, Liberal MPs would no longer be MPs. They'd be replaced by Conservatives, and in some cases, some New Democrats as well. Okay, well, let's carry that on, because, you know, Pierre Polyev today said, basically, any increases on uh, on a carbon tax on, on home heating should be paused until an election were held. Canadians can make a, a decision about, about the carbon tax. If an election were held today, what would happen? Well, Pierre Polyev would get to make a lot of those decisions, I think, because it would be a conservative majority government. We saw a poll again today from Leger, 14-point lead for the conservatives. There were a couple polls last week that had it at 16 points for the conservatives. There's really nowhere in the country that the liberals are doing particularly well. They're well behind in Ontario. They're well behind in British Columbia. In Quebec, it's now a three-way race with the Bloc Québécois and, to a lesser extent, the Conservatives. You'd see a Conservative majority. It's just a question of whether it would be a big majority or a huge majority government, I think, right now. I think that's pretty much where it stands. For the other parties, though, they still have to take some into consideration whether they would want an election. The Bloc would probably be no further ahead. The New Democrats might lose some seats. And both parties would lose a lot of influence 
in a House of Commons where the Conservatives have a majority. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how much is that uh, is tied to leadership? How much is that about the issues that each party is focusing on? I think a lot of it is leadership, primarily Justin Trudeau's, because Pierre Polyev's numbers have improved over the last few months, but they're, they're not stellar. They're still, they're not uh, in a position where there's a Polyev mania going across the country. Instead, what you see is that Justin Trudeau's uh, personal approval ratings, his standing in terms of whether Canadians see him as the best prime minister, those numbers have dropped, and in some cases, they're the lowest they have been throughout his entire reign as prime minister. You have to go back to the SNC-Lavalin affair in 2019 to see similar numbers, and in some cases, those numbers back then were still better than where Justin Trudeau is today. So it does seem that a lot of what we've seen is the unpopularity of Justin Trudeau that is dragging some of the liberal numbers down, and Poilievre has shaved off a little bit of his unfavorables, and so that has improved their standing, but I, I think it is primarily the leadership question on the liberal side uh, that is driving a lot of these numbers. Okay, uh, when you speak of numbers, you know, of course, what the polls indicate is one side of the story, but you, but you released something today on the writ, really, which is gobsmacking, especially when you put it in a graphic, and that has to do with the fundraising, because that tells the other side of the story here. Yeah, and it's a story that is uh, really bad for the Liberals, because the Conservatives have always raised more money than the Liberals, but what's happening over the last little while is that they're raising a lot more money. Uh, they raised $7 million over the last quarter. The Liberals raised just over $3 million, the NDP $1.5 million. But if you look at it over the course of the year so far to date, the, la the nine, first nine months of the year, the Conservatives have raised $13.5 million more than the Liberals. That's the biggest gap we've seen ever between those two parties over the first nine months of a year. You have to go back to 2008 to find the last record, and that was $11 million. So the advantage that the Conservatives have in the polls is being replicated in the fundraising, and you see it across the country. The only place where the Conservatives aren't raising more money than the Liberals is in Quebec, and even there it's pretty close. So, yeah, the dollars are following the polls, and that just makes it a lot easier for the Conservatives to buy ads, and prepare for the next election. Okay, prepare for the next election. If the supply and confidence agreement holds, we're talking about October of 2025. Is there enough time for Trudeau to turn things around or his brand recognition, his brand value, is that now just gone? It is going to be very, very tough. It is two years, if it can last for two years. Lots can happen over two years. Poilievre's numbers could come down enough that Justin Trudeau becomes by comparison, the more palliative alternative. But there's not a lot of cases where a government is this far behind in the polls, this far out from an election, and is able to turn it around. One example was the 1988 election. Brian Mulroney and the Conservatives were trailing in the polls, but they had a free trade election. That was an issue that galvanized the country. It doesn't seem to me that the Liberals have that kind of issue that they can pull out in 2025 to turn all of this around and make it about something else other than Justin Trudeau. They've got a long ways to go and it's not going to be easy. Yeah, and, and in the Mulroney case, he was asking for a second mandate, not a fourth mandate, which Justin Trudeau is asking for. And there's not a lot of examples of, of people getting that fourth mandate. Eric, thank you for this. Uh, we will speak again. But for now, Eric Grenier, polls analyst, the man behind the writ. And that is today's program for this Wednesday. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. I'm Michael Serapio. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow night. But up next, Esther Bejin avec L'Essentiel.